0: Welcome back to the New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Ron Coragian, author of Baseball Hall of Fame Autographs, a reference guide, second edition. Ron, thanks for being with
1: us today. Uh, Thanks, Bob.
0: Ron is a a commercial banker and attorney and lives in Rochester Hills, Michigan. He's also been involved in autograph collecting and authentication for more than 35 years. Ron has a love for baseball, particularly old-time baseball and one day wants to see Bobby Beach, the outfielder who was Ty Cobb's teammate, make it to the Hall of Fame. Ron, give the listener a little bit of background about you and your education and your professional career, if you would.
1: Uh, Basically, I work at uh, Bank of America. I've been in banking my entire life. Um, I've had a brief stint in law doing litigation, but mostly it's been banking with some of the major banks here in Detroit, Huntington Bank, Sterling Bank and Trust, uh, Charter One. And I've been at uh, Bank of America for uh, two and a half, three years as a commercial credit officer. So I approved commercial loans, uh, lines of credit and mortgages. Um, I went I uh, did my undergrad degree at Lawrence Tech University in Southfield. And then I got a law degree, uh, JD at uh, Wayne State University in downtown Detroit. Uh, you
0: grew up a Detroit Tigers fan and uh, listen to Ernie Harwell call the games on radio when you're a kid, you know, sitting on the back porch and in your house. And you dabbled in autographs when you were a kid, but a report you did in middle school pointed you toward Hall of Famers. Uh, can you share that story?
1: Yeah, I, I've always been into baseball, and I first started collecting baseball cards in 77, 78. Um, of course, I don't have those anymore. And uh, my first autographs were Tigers like Jason Thompson and Milt May that would sign at, uh, you know, malls and stores for free. Um, but uh, when I was in uh uh uh, uh 12th grade. Uh, I was assigned a book report to write on Ty Cobb. And so I did some research at the library. I got the, all the information. And then uh, we had uh, a gentleman by the name of Charlie Gerringer that lived about a mile away from my house, which I'm sure all the baseball fans know who he is. And uh, so I called up uh, Mr. Uringer and we talked and, and Charlie played for under Cobb for a couple of years. In fact, uh, Cobb had uh, taught him how to bat or mentored him. And uh, we talked about my book report so I could add some uh, information to my uh, text. And then he invited me over to his house uh, to look at his memorabilia. He had a sign for Ty Cobb, He had uh, signatures of Ruth and some, uh, you know, awards and stuff. So it was about a half hour, 45 minutes. And then as I was leaving, he gave me a signed Hall of Fame plaque postcard. Um, and that was my first Hall of Fame autograph. And I kind of got uh, from there.
0: You note in your book, Ron, that the uh, autograph hobby is not for the faint of heart. Uh, What do you mean by that?
1: Uh, Well, there's so much money in this hobby, not just uh, autographs, baseball cards and memorabilia as well, that invites crime, forgeries, and counterfeiting. Uh, When I started collecting back in the late 70s, early 80s, going to the baseball card shows here on Detroit, uh, material had very little value. You could pick up a signed baseball of Ty Cobb or Babe Ruth for like $75 to $100. You could pick up, you know, the tobacco cards of Ty Cobb and high grade for like forty to fifty dollars. So there wasn't much uh, value there, and so there wasn't a, much, a lot of crime. Now, though, everything's so expensive. Where the, for example, the museum grade signed baseballs of Cobb and Ruth are now fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. The Ty Cobb tobacco cards are going crazy, especially the greenback, where you know ones graded near mint to eight are going for three to four hundred thousand dollars. That there's so many forgers and counterfeiters out in the market now, and it's 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 really become a problem.
0: Well, this is the second edition of a book you originally compiled in uh, 2012. Uh, what new material did you add to this book?
1: Well, it has the uh, new inductees, obviously, from uh, 13 to uh, 2018. Um, I also added, uh, I expanded some of the studies uh, when, when I got new information on most. Uh, well, on like. For example, Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Hannes Wagner. So there's more information in some of the studies. I also added two chapters, one on the Black Sox scandal, where I look at all the the Black Sox autographs, not just the players, but the managers like Kid Gleason, uh, Arnold Rothstein, the gambler. And then I put in another chapter on the top 50 non-Hall of Fame autographs in terms of desirability. Not necessarily those who would make the Hall of Fame, but uh, players like Roger Maris, Gil Hodges and a lot of the old timers like Tony Mullane, Bobby Beach, Ed Rulebach, uh, Deacon Phillips. So the, I think the first edition was 240 pages. This one's a little over 300 pages, so it has a, a lot more information in it. Right. Some of the guys that are on the uh, on
0: the on the cusp of possibly getting in the Hall of Fame, of the Veterans Committee get smart,
1: you know. Yes. Um, to go, you know, I've been trying to get as you know uh, Veach in the Hall of Fame. But there's also a lot of other players. I mean, the other Tigers I think that should have a serious consideration are like Harvey Keene, Doc Kramer, uh, and uh, Mickey Lowlich.
0: Mm-hmm. What are some of the uh, pitfalls of collecting autographs?
1: Uh, well, m- mainly you have the, the forgery aspect, uh, especially with the popular long-deceased Hall of Famers like you know, Cobb, Ruth, Gehrig, Wagner, Cy Young. Uh, you know, I would say at least 90% of the market signatures are fake. Uh, even the ones that are certified by the authentication companies, the major authentication companies, there's a lot of forgeries that have slipped by. So you have to do your research. The other problem is, is some of this material is getting so expensive, ex- especially with the immortals like the original inductees, that it's becoming prohibitive for the average collector to uh, obtain a signature. Uh, for example, like the Cobb signed photos of eight by eight by ten photos of Ty Cobb, which were, you know, a year and a half ago, or two to three thousand are now basically have tripled in value. There was a nice example uh, in Leland's it sold for 20,000 and one in our auctions it just sold for 12,000. So it's a lot of money out there. There's a lot of fake material. So you've got to be very careful.
0: Well, that's something you also address in your book too. You have like five levels of forgery. Can you go through them? I think there were five. Um, what are they?
1: Well, basically you have the, the poorly executed forgery, uh, which that's probably the most common. Those are done with forgers of limited skill, and they easily stand out to the trained eye. Signatures are labored, shaking appearance. Sometimes they look childlike or as or if somewhat an elderly person with uh, with palsy signed it. Um, then you have traced forgeries. Those are uh, also labored. They're more methodic uh, because they, they're basically you put a piece of paper over a genuine signature and you just basically trace over it. Um, those are less shaky, but they still lack the reckless or the effortless flow of a genuine signature. Then you have a, what is called a freehand forgery. And those, that's typically where a forger uh, forges a signature. He doesn't know what it looks like. He doesn't really care. Uh, so it has no re- resemblance to a genuine signature. That's typically reserved for the really ultra rare signatures that nobody really knows what they look like. You know, for many years, some of the 19th century ballplayers like Haas Radborn, uh, Rube Waddell, Jake Beckley. Uh, you saw a lot of freehand forgeries where they were all different uh, examples and none of them lo- matched each other simply because nobody knew what they looked like. Um, you also see it with the old-time boxers like George Dixon. Um, and then you have the well-executed forgery, which is obviously the most ominous. These are the ones that fool a lot of the authentication companies. Uh, these are signatures that are very close to the real real, uh, the genuine article. These are foragers with really good skill and they match hand speed. So signature, the forgeries look flowing, they lack uh, hesitation, and they're more difficult to locate. And then the fifth forgery would be the authorized forgery, which is a secretarial signature. Uh, you see a lot of clubhouse signatures where, you know, uh, clubhouse attendants would sign for Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig. Um, or, uh, for example, a lot of the league executives like on uh, Landis uh, Warren Giles where they their secretaries would sign the letters and documents for them. So those would be the top five.
0: And there's the famous example out of ball four where Jim Bouton said that the Pete Previtt from the Clubhouse Guy in the Yankees used to forge a lot of Mickey Mantle's baseball signatures. Yeah.
1: Yeah, a lot of a lot of the uh baseballs in the fifties had with Mantle and Barra, a lot of the managers too, like a lot of the uh, you know, baseball signed by the Go Go White Sox with Al Lopez uh, the Lopez signatures were signed by uh, an attendant. Uh, same with Casey Stengel. So you just have to do your research because some baseballs will uh, obtain uh, will contain a clubhouse signature or two, usually of the more uh, you know uh, famous players. Let's
0: circle back. To, let's circle back to uh, Rube Waddell for a moment. Uh, this was an astounding find that you that you came up with getting his genuine uh, autograph. Go ahead and tell that story because to me it's very fascinating.
1: Yeah, Waddell is a one of the rarest of all Hall of Fame autographs. I only know one market signature. Uh, it's on a it's on a old uh, menu sign in pencil with some other uh, dignitaries, including uh, uh, Joe McGinnity. Uh For years, there, this is we were talking about freehand forgeries. This is a prime example. Uh, Waddell forgeries are all over the place. Even when I started collecting. Uh, when they were, even when signatures were kind of worth very little, you saw a lot of Waddell forgeries and they all varied in construction. They all looked different. Um, And a lot of the, you know, the established dealers were selling Waddell signatures and uh, I had pronounced them all as fake in an uh, article years ago in the sports collector's digest. And of course I caught a lot of the grief from authenticators and sellers and auction houses. And so basically uh, when I was doing research for my book, I was uh, looking for some of the rare signatures and obviously they weren't collections. So I turned to uh, governmental concern and concerns in municipalities, probates, register of deeds. And I found some really cool material like Eddie Plank's will and stuff like that. So I had, uh, some, somebody told me that Waddell was, uh, was divorced in St. Louis, uh, back in 1910, 1911. So I picked up the phone. I called the St. Louis courthouse, uh, uh probate. And I, uh, Got someone there and i said do you have any divorce files going back to the turn of the last century and they said well yeah we we'll keep them in the basement i said could you see if you have anything on a george edward waddell and so she she called me back the next day and she says yeah i i have his divorce file here and i'm like wow and is there anything signed i asked and they said there's three signatures and i was elated so they sent me uh, copies of the three signatures and of course, the signatures on this, the divorce documents didn't match anything that was sold ever with the exception of that menu uh, that was countersigned by McGinnity. So that basically kind of blew all the other Waddell transactions right out of the water. And it, it's kind of funny because I had made this big discovery and uh, I, I was going to, you know, when my book came out, you know, publicize it. And then like three days later, they, there was a big article in the St. Louis, I think, the Post-Dispatch about this big discovery of the Waddell signatures. I'm like, oh, crap. And basically what happened was somehow the state found out about it. And the state, I'm told, uh, confiscated, if you will, the documents for their state historical society. And so I think the, the actual state of Missouri now has it. Sounds like a reporter got hold of um, the information, too. If um, Yeah, sense. because when I... When I told the the attendant, one of the worker at the probate, uh, you know, how rare, because she had no idea why I wanted it and or who this, who Ruth that was, I said, well, he's a Hall of Famer and you're probably holding about $150,000 worth of autographs and those three signatures. And then she just about dropped uh, right then and there.
0: Yeah, it's like holding a Hannes Wagner card almost. <laughs> Um, what to co- what to collect is an important step for collectors, especially autograph uh, collectors and you, in your book you tell collectors to you know collect what you want and be mindful of the rate of return, which is really good advice. but some collectors just want to jump in and throw lots of money around and explain what what collectors, especially new collectors should keep in mind when they jump into this hobby.
1: Well, the number one is you you collect what you like. You know, it's, it's, it's like artwork. If you like a piece of art, you buy it because it looks good on the wall. Um, but, you know, as when you're new into the hobby, you know, uh, you don't know a lot. and You have to learn. It's a learning curve. And in this hobby, autographs are very complex, you know, collectibles. So it takes years. So I've always advised people to collect the, you know, the uh, Hall of Famers. Stay away from the ultra rare stuff. Stay away from the museum grade signed baseballs of Cobb, Ruth and Garrett because 99% of those are fake and focus on uh, names like Dizzy Dean, Gabby Hartnett, Sam Crawford, Ed Barrow, uh, even signed checks of like Ty Cobb and and, uh, uh, Frank Baker. Uh, Stay away from the the ultra-rare stuff because, like I said, there's a lot of forgeries and you have to become acclimated with signatures and handwriting before you throw big money around. And then I also advise collectors to stay away from the newer stuff. The Hall of Famers that lived into the 90s and the early, you know, that have passed away recently. I mean, for example, like Billy Herman, Charlie Geringer, Ernie Banks, George Kell, even Yogi Berra. uh, uh, These players signed so much material, um, you know, I don't know, 50,000, 100,000, that it will never be rare. And with the current players like Sandberg, Cal Ripken, Nolan Ryan, they've signed, you know, tens of thousands in there, they're going to live on, you know, for many decades and sign many thousands more. So the newer stuff is not going to be worth a lot of money uh, unless it's on a, an interesting piece like a handwritten letter of a modern hall of Famer is, is rare and desirable. And I also advise collectors to pick up high end signed tops, rookie cards of hall of famers, um, Koufax, you know, any of them really Lou Brock, Al Kaline, Armand Killebrew, uh, Gaylord Perry, because that material, you get high-end signed rookie cards, those seem to do really well.
0: So um, what, are, what are some of the best ways to get autographs now? I mean, years ago, you used to go through the mail, or you'd go to the game, you'd bring an index card. Um, what were some of the, the better ways to do it now?
1: Well, back in the old days, when I started collecting, I, I went to uh, a baseball card store in here in Farmington, and it was owned by a Detroit News sports writer by the name of Jim Hawkins. And he had set up this shop. He just really liked the game. And I had it was my first baseball card store I'd ever been to, and I was really impressed. And they had the Baseball Hall of Fame address list by Jack Smalling. And so I picked that up. And back then, it had addresses of all the Hall of Famers, all the living players, even going back to Smokey Joe Wood. That tells you when I started writing. And back then, you could just... You know, mail them a, a, a an item, they'd sign it. I think uh, initially i sent out 50 requests and I got 48 back. I don't think I got anything from Mantle or Willie Mays. Uh, but things are a little different today. You know, everybody's charging. Very few Hall of Famers signed for free in the mail. Um, maybe two or three. Uh, Bud Selig, Pat Gillick, occasionally uh, John Schauerholtz. I think Schauerholtz is now charging now for, you know, and he donates to money charity. And occasionally you'll get lucky with like Goose Gosses, but that's about it. So basically the way you have to get these signatures now is many people sign through the mail for a fee. So if you mail them a cash or check, you should have a pretty good success rate. Now Some won't like Kofax or, or Aaron. Um, and those type of players, you have to get them exclusively at shows or through private signings. But those are you're going to put down some uh, decent money. You know, you know, Koufax, I'm sure, or Aaron, they charge 150, 200, 300 bucks now to sign an autograph, which to me is kind of ridiculous. But each his own, yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our
0: land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. What I enjoy about your book is how you try to throw in some historical perspective about every player that you that you mentioned in the book, his, his autograph, and you know what the guy did. Um, what kind of research did you do to find and verify the autographs and and um, you know the information that you got about right. each player?
1: Well, uh, s- s- most of the Hall of Famers, 90 percent of them, there's so many signatures out there, uh, uh, you know, throughout the years. And I mean, you know, people like Cy Young, Hannes Wagner, Walter Johnson, Ruth Cobb, Crawford, Paul Wayner, and then certainly the modern players, that it's easy to establish a signature, what it looks like. Uh, there's a lot of checks, for example, of Hannes Wagner, a lot of government postcards, a lot of documents of these players. Uh, so that's that's not t- uh, too hard to do. Um with the rarer names though, there's a lot of fake signatures. So how do you determine what's a genuine say, Jack? Chesbro or uh Haas Radborn? And that's when the the governmental agencies come are come in, in handy because they typically have the wills which are ironclad. There's no forged wills out there because they're notarized and they're signed by four witnesses and they're filed at the courthouse. Um, mortgage documents, for example, there are also registered deeds will have these and they'll keep them forever. Uh, those are the best ways to determine uh, a genuine signature of a really hard autograph. Now, I will tell you, some of the old Negro leaguers that they had put in 2006 were impossible to find. Uh, you know, like Louis Santop, Judd Jud Wilson, uh, Smokey Joe Williams. And it's funny, when my, my first book came out, I had sent the, the book to the publisher, I met my deadline. And uh, I think that two days after I mailed it, I got a call from the uh, National Archives in Atlanta. And I had sent them a list a few weeks ago about some of these really rare autographs. And they came back and said we've had all but I think one or two uh, these these really rare Negro League autographs. I called my pub- publisher. I said put it on hold for a couple weeks. And they sent me like eight or ten of the World War One draft cards. And those draft cards are a gold mine for. Uh, collectors are people doing research because there's not only many ultra rare baseball autographs. Uh, there's you know I found H.P. Lovecrafts and old time golfers, uh, Leo Deagle for example, Jerome Travers, and even if you're not collecting autographs, you're just doing you know family research, genealogy. There's I, I found my grandfather's World War One draft card where I said he worked at Cadillac Motors as a fireman in 1916. So the governmental concerns are are probably the best source. Of finding the ultra rare and the really hard autographs it takes some time and detective work it's actually kind of fun
0: that's true because um i'm subscribed to ancestry.com for example and i get access to world war one and world war Two um cards so it's, it's kind of fun to see that stuff you know you see the autographs you know
1: yeah from yeah i had uh, written uh, actually a book on uh, historical autographs which was my second book and I found, uh, for example, you know, Al Capone's draft card, So, and, and I added some of those uh, cards to my second edition.
0: And we'll get to the uh, historical book in a few minutes, too. But I think the reader will be interested in the way you classify autographs, um, your description. Like, for example, you say some write in an aggressive hand, some some write in a simple and pensive um, style. Others have large and flowing or eloquent. Um, are these common terms among signature collections, or are these things that you came up with?
1: No, I mean we all you know every every genre or industry has a lingo, and so does autographs. Uh, so there' you know racing starts, racing finishes. this is where you know the signature starts and it leaves a a, a tailing flowing ink stroke. Um, and so this is all these are our our terms of uh, in the hobby, for example, we don't really say, you know, 8 by 10 photo. Uh, we say quarto or anything larger as folio, anything, you know, a 5 by 7 document is octavo. And it's kind of arcane, but it's still used a lot today.
0: Well, who would, for example, who would have an aggressive hand? What Hall of Famer would you say off the top of your head was aggressively a signer?
1: Well, you know, you know, they, they, for example, well, most of the modern players, they can't even sign their name anymore. And it's kind of disgraceful. I mean, I, you look at signatures like... Craig Biggio, Cal Ripken, um, some of these modern players they put in Frank Thomas and it's just a, a scribble. I mean, uh, Greg Maddox is just horrid, um, and it's it's actually kind of embarrassing because they're not even they're not even readable. Um, I, you know, somebody once said Ty Cobb's signature looked like a bunch of angry tangled lines. Uh, so Cobb, Hornsby, these are people that sign an aggressive, large hand. Uh, Eddie Collins' signature is very aggressive and beautiful. It's one of the finest of the Hall of Famers. And the good thing about the really flowing signatures is they're very difficult to forge. Uh, Your finest, your best, uh, most complex signatures, I think, would be Charlie Yernger, Barney Dreyfus, (coughs) Harry Wright, uh, Alexander Cartwright, and Eddie Collins. And their signatures are so complex that there's no well-executed forgeries in the market uh, today. Uh, They're just too difficult to copy. Whereas some of the other players, they sign a more simplistic hand, and they're easier to forge. Like for example, a uh, cool Papa Bell or uh, uh, Whitey Herzog. Where there's a lot of breaks yeah. in the hands, so forgers typically avoid the uh, the the uh, more difficult signatures to forge, and they they, can't, they focus on the less the har- the lesser or I should say that the signatures that are signed in a slower, more pensive.
0: What about um, from this year's hall of fame class? I always thought Mariana Rivera had a nice autograph.
1: Uh, Rivera is, and he's one of the few modern hall of famers where you can actually kind of read the signature. Um, The other ones though, like, you know, Jim Tomey, who made it this year? Um, uh, Edgar Martinez. Um, uh, Trevor Hoffman made it a, a year or so ago, but their handwriting, it's just you can't read it and it, there's not not much to it. And so they're very easy to forge. I mean, not many people are forging them, but, you know, if they can uh, forge a Cal Ripken on a baseball and get 40 bucks for it, then maybe they are, because there are, there are forgeries, but uh, forgeries are the, the sealed forgeries. Uh, generally, uh, target the, the more expensive long deceased mm-hmm.
0: names. Another aspect um, collectors need to take into consideration when they're collecting is how a person's handwriting progresses or degenerates as they get older. And I think you mentioned that in the book, and it's something collectors need to keep in mind. You know, like a Thai Kai autograph. maybe that's not a good example, but one he had in the 1920s is markedly different than perhaps one he had just before he died in 1961.
1: Right. Uh, some, most most people, their handwriting evolves over the years. You know, I, I, when we're kids or teenagers, it looks different from when we hit our mid-20s, and then it, it kind of stays the same, but it changes a little bit. You know, through time, everything changes. Some Hall of Famers, their handwriting never changes. Uh, you know, Max Carey is, and George Kelly are good examples. You look at their signatures in the 1920s on bank checks and look at the way they signed in the 1970s, looks exactly the same. Some have changed markedly like Mickey Mantle. Early Mantle signatures are signed in a rudimentary hand. They're very plain looking. Even through the early 50s and in the, in the mid to late 50s, it changed. In the 60s, it changed. By the 70s, it became very flamboyant with flowing, you know, M's. So Mantle signature changed greatly. So some change, some don't. But usually there is some deviation of hand, not Not to the extreme, like Mantle, but there is some deviation of hand of uh, of, uh, the person's autograph.
0: Yeah, I think Hank Aaron is probably an example. Of course, he's what? He's 85, just turned 85. So you got to expect that.
1: Yeah, Aaron, well, Aaron's a good example. Signatures signed during his playing days were a little more, they were smaller. They were less flamboyant. Uh, in In retirement, when he hit the signing circuit or the autograph circuit in the 80s and 90s, they became... Uh, larger, but a little less uh, structured. You know, c- it was easier to sign it that way. Uh, the ones he signs in the past few years have been kind of choppy, and the evidence uh, you know, an elderly hand and their uh, uh, hesitation is known in the handwriting, and they lack the, the flow of the signature signed 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, let's go back to that uh, second book that you wrote about historical autographs, and it includes uh, famous politicians, inventors, and I think some pop culture figures as well. Talk about that book briefly.
1: Yeah, I, that book, um, I always wanted to do a historical reference guide. One, a really good one, hasn't been done for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. And that one also has a chapter on, on baseball, but it has 10, 15 different or 10, 12 different chapters where I look at, uh, for example, aviation and space, World War One, World War II, presidents, composers, Supreme Court, uh, authors, science and technology, um, golf, baseballs in there and that book uh, that one was uh, uh, well, a little over 400 pages that one was uh, kind of a labor of love and that mm-hmm. one details uh, for example all the Supreme Court justices including uh, Alfred Moore who's probably the toughest the holy grail of court autographs um, it features all the presidents including uh, David uh, uh, Rice Atchison who was the president for one day and it has right. multiple examples of each like there's you know three or four uh, Washington, Lincoln, so some forgeries. Uh, so that one, uh, that has more of a uh, appeal outside of the United States. It, you know, it sells on eBay. Uh, so uh, that one was, uh, I enjoyed doing that one. And uh, I don't know if I'll do a second edition to it. I don't think I am, but who knows? Maybe I will.
0: True. Any, uh, any signatures of Button Gwinnett?
1: Uh, Button Gwinnett. Uh, he's uh, probably, probably the most expensive autograph. Uh, out of them all throughout the planet, of the ones that are attainable. Uh, Gwinnett, uh, if you are collecting, uh, he was a signer, a Georgia signer for the Declaration of Independence. And if you're looking to complete a set, you need Gwinn- Gwinnett's signature. Gwinnett died shortly after signing the, the, the Declaration of Independence. The reason why he's so rare, supposedly, I, don't, I haven't been able to confirm this, is uh, his uh, library, the, the house that House's library, caught fire and his papers were destroyed. Uh, so there's only a scarce few signatures out there, and uh, one hasn't been sold in years. There's been quite a few fake ones uh, that turn up in major auctions, but I haven't seen a genuine one. If, to be quite honest, in my lifetime as a collector, should right. one turn, should one turn up for sale a genuine one, it would sell, I would think, between seven hundred fifty thousand and a million dollars.
0: Wow! And what is the name of that second book again, just so the readers? and listeners know what it is.
1: Oh, it's, a uh, uh, collecting historical autographs. It was also published by McFarland.
0: Okay. And back to your current, back to your current book. Um, what did you learn from your research um, in, in this book that was particularly helpful? Um,
1: uh, you know, as a writer and as a collector, everything evolves. Um, and you know, I wrote certain things in my first edition and, uh, between the first and second edition uh you know new signatures turned up um and a lot of stuff that was was rare for example almost non-existent like tim Keefe, um showed up and then it it uh, it, it, it will it allowed me to uh you know alter and expand my edition of the book for example with Keefe. Uh, I knew of no signatures in the market of Keefe, except for one or two. That was it was in a, a ledger that uh, I forget who sold it. It was a, a Union League document. And two years ago, there was a contractor, a flooring contractor, in a building in New York, and they found uh, some accordion files. And he grabbed one of them, and the other ones actually, unfortunately, got thrown away. And it was all baseball documents from the 1800s. And there were six Tim Keefe signatures in there. There were two Buck Hewing signatures. Um, So as I write, you know, and and as I collect, I collect knowledge. And, uh, you know, when things change, I update the study. So uh, you will see that in the book where I had said certain things in the first edition and then things changed in the second edition with new discoveries, usually what their term term is barn finds like the Keefe's. It was just sitting there and. They found this, you know, over well over a hundred thousand dollars in, in ten signatures just sitting in a, an old abandoned building.
0: Yeah. So, looking back at all this, what was the most challenging part of your research?
1: Um, collecting, co- collecting the examples. Um, you know, to actually write the book is not a big deal because as a collector doing this for thirty-five years, everything's in my head. I think it took me, you know, the both all the books, the first and the edition of the Hall of Fame book and the a history book, a historical autograph book. I think I wrote the text in like two to three months. Just sat down every night, typed up three or four pages. After a couple months, I had you know three, four hundred pages. Collecting the the illustrations though is what delayed it. Uh, you you contact collectors and they help you. The Hall of Fame was very helpful, and then you start contacting archives throughout the United States. I probably talked to you know you know in Hawaii, Georgia, Nebraska. And trying to get those signatures, it took a long time, and that's what what really uh, was the bulk of the time to put this book together.
0: Yeah, and what did you learn? And um, looking at over at all of it, what did you learn that surprised you the most? Where you looked at it, and went whoa.
1: Um, just it. I'll tell you that when they when I wrote my first book, uh, there was you know the signatures of. Uh, Like for example, Hoss Radborn and Dan Browthers and King Kelly, they were nowhere to be found. Uh, I think there was one Kelly signature in the market. I had never seen a Radborn uh, in the market, and Browthers, and you saw all types of forgeries. And to this day, I've never seen. I don't. I don't think there's a market signature of Radborn. And the Hall of Fame opened up their archives to me, and like deep. The, the, the Frederick Long collection and the August Terman collection, especially the Frederick Long collection, which is a small collection, of signed financial documents from the, the league in the 1880s. And they just found, oh, we have, you know, 20 endorsed checks of Hoss Radborn, 20 endorsed checks of Dan Brothers. And that was a huge find for me. Um, and that really enhanced my book. And the Hall of Fame was very gracious. They sent me all this material and gave me permission to, uh, illustrated in the book, and that really helped. And same with the World War One archives, the draft cards. That was a that was a huge find. I mean, that was that was really amazing. What was what's in there? I'm just you. you there's so many rare uh, and famous, uh, rare names of famous uh, people in those archives. It's mind blowing. I mean, actors, all sports figures, boxers. I think I found Marvin Hart in there, for example, who's a really tough one of the really rare uh, heavyweight champion autographs.
0: Well, here's the part of the interview where I ask you what I missed. Is there anything you'd like to add about the book that we haven't talked about yet?
1: Um, just that it's got a lot more illustrations than the first book. I kind of got chastised because it didn't have a lot of illustrations in the first couple of chapters. It has a, mm-hmm. The first edition had a lot of illustrations of the signatures. People want to see more illustrations of signed baseballs, baseball cards, stuff like that. Uh, and then I put in a, a, a price guide, uh, in the first edition, my publisher didn't want a price guide. They just wanted auction prices. And I kind of got, uh, you know, berated by collectors saying there should be a price guide in there. So this edition has a price guide, although the way the economy is going now and everything's on fire, people are throwing around cash left and right. Material is, is doubling and tripling in value, uh, cards and autographs. It's, it's just incredible, uh, especially with Ruth and Cobb, uh, those two names are basically driving the market. There's so much interest in, in those two players, uh, especially the old Cobb tobacco cards uh, that it's, it's really raising all prices of all the other hall of famers like Wagner, Cy Young, Napoleon Lodge away. It's, it's actually incredible mm. what's happening.
0: And we've talked about the Thai combat that um, he had with um, Joe Jackson which was just an amazing find a couple months ago.
1: Yeah, that's uh, this. I think the guy paid, I I, th- I want to say a little under 300000 for a gamer bat of Cobb, which is, you know, would if you can prove the bat's genuine, that would be a steal. Uh, I still don't know how you prove it. a bat was used in Major League Play 80, 90 years ago, but teach his own. But this guy bought the bat, and there's a famous photo of Joe Jackson and Ty Cobb, as you know, standing uh, beside each other holding bats, and they the, the gentleman that bought the bat was able to photo match it to the bat in that photo, and now that bat, which he I think paid two eighty, is worth a lot more. That's probably that would probably go. oh That's an iconic bat associated with Cobb. Probably go for over a million bucks, I think.
0: Yeah, if he wants to sell it, which he doesn't, yeah. he has his kids. He has his kids swinging the bat in the living room.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I do that, but yeah, I mean it, that's that's uh, that's a gem of a piece. It really is. Yeah.
0: And, um, to let the listeners know, I also have your, your autograph as well, in one of your books. So I'm sure that's a rare one.
1: Yeah. Especially if it's on a blank check other than that, I don't know if anyone, it's kind of weird how <laughs> it's kind of weird. And the first time I was asked for an autograph, it's just, it was, it was funny, you know, and I do sign autographs. People will mainly copy the books and I'll autograph them uh, as long as they put it in like a return mailer and stuff like that. But, uh, right. it's, uh, it's, it's been pretty fun. And then of course, once you publish your first book, you're like kind of like in the in crowd, and you you get to know a lot of famous people. Uh, you know, for example, you know Faye Vincent wrote the foreword in my first book. Real nice man. I still keep in touch with them. A lot of the the uh, the sports writers want to uh, uh, talk with you um, and interview you. I've been interviewed many times uh, in Forbes, New York Daily News, New York Post. Um, so, and I, I got to know Elmore Leonard, the crime author here, uh, who lived in Bloomfield. So it's, it's been pretty fun.
0: So what was your, what was your reaction when you got the first autograph request? What was it through the mail or was it in person?
1: And somebody wrote me and said, can I mail you the book? And I'm like, no, sure. And like, uh, you know, and so I mailed it to me and I felt like, uh, you know, like one of the hall of famers signing an autograph and I signed it and inscribed it and dated real nice and sent it back. And then I've had people, my friends buy it obviously. And I sent it for them and then, uh, People at, at like shows I've signed, a, you know, uh, at the national now and then. So, and it's, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good feeling knowing somebody wants your autograph because when you write a book and you wrote that book on, uh, was it Forrest Ferguson, the football player? Right. Um, you know, once you write a book, it's out there forever. Ever. So four or 500 years from now, somebody's going to pick up my book and know my name, which I think is pretty cool. So how would
0: you uh, characterize your autograph? Is this an aggressive or pensive or what type of, how would you classify it?
1: I'm very aggressive and very sloppy. My mom hates it, but that's the way I sign it. So.
0: <laughs> well, this has been very interesting, and I know your time is valuable. What is your next project? I'm sure you have a few in the fire.
1: Yeah, I, uh, well, I've written a, co- a couple you know, fantasy sci-fi novels, and I'd love to get those published, although getting fiction published is very difficult because everybody's writing fiction doing a research book is easy to get published because nobody's going to take the time to re- do the research like for example I did on my book so I didn't even have an agent with my book and I sent out like 10 requests and I think five publishers came back and with you know interest in um, and, and, and varying degrees and, and you know McFarlane was the one that I chose it was a smaller press but well established I like the way they laid out the book. Uh, so right now I am trying to work on a screenplay trying to get it for hopefully for a movie on JL Wilkinson the uh, owner of the Kansas city Monarchs who was inducted in the hall of fame in 2006. Uh, and actually it was like one of the few, few if only white owners of one of the Negro league teams. And then I'd like, you know, another book that I'd like to write here is on about the black Legion, which was a white supremacist paramilitary group in Detroit in the twenties and thirties during the prohibition era. Uh, but, uh, and the Wayne State University Archives has a huge collection. I think they got fifteen linear feet on the Black Legion of, of that was assembled in the nineteen forties. Uh, you know, I may do that. So we'll see. Uh, one of one of those two. I think uh, the Legion story needs to be told. Um, they're kind of well known around here, but uh, uh, outside of Detroit and maybe Northern Ohio, very few people know about the Legion, and they were they were brutal. I mean, they made the clan look like Boy Scouts. Wow. Yeah, they were they were pretty bad. I mean, there's they they do some pretty horrific things. They, you know, used to uh, release people in farms in rural Michigan and hunt them down. And uh, they would kill people because they were married to Catholics. And uh, Detroit Highland Park was a hotbed of of the uh, the Legion. And so was northern Ohio, like throughout Toledo and Perrysburg. So, yeah.
0: Okay, well, here's your platform. Uh, Why should Bobby Beach get into the Hall of Fame?
1: Ah, Veach, if if he was on any other team, he'd be in the Hall of Fame 30, 40, 50 years ago. He had the misfortune of playing in two outfields that were, you know, the Tiger outfields of the turn of the last century were considered some of the greatest of all time. You think about it, you had Cobb, Crawford, and Davy Jones. And then you had Cobb, Crawford, and Veach. And anybody that plays alongside Cobb is going to get overshadowed. So Cobb and Crawford made the Hall of Fame. And then when Crawford retired, you had to head Harry Heilman. So you had Cobb, Heilman, and Beach. And Heilman, by himself, uh, you know, there's an argument to make that he was uh, one of the 10 greatest ballplayers of all time. I mean, his numbers are phenomenal. Uh, so when you play uh, in, against, uh, in the same outfield with Cobb, Crawford, and Heilman, you get to get, be overshadowed. But when you look at his numbers, he had a 311 lifetime average, 10 out of 14 years over 300. I think he scored between 19... 15 and 1922 no player in either league scored more RBIs than than Beach uh, he he led the league three years at uh, three times for RBIs um, many hall of famers that saw him play uh, believe he believes, believes in the hall of fame like Geringer and uh, uh, Joe Sewell. Uh, I one of the best lines was Carl Hubble, who said about Beach uh, Quote, I'm under the impression that Bobby Beach is in the Hall of Fame. If he is not, he certainly belongs there, unquote. So Man. hopefully we'll make it someday.
0: Very true. Okay. We've been speaking with Ron Coragian, author of Baseball Hall of Fame Autographs, the reference guide, second edition. Ron, thanks so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, love, love to do it. Sure.
0: Well, you've been listening to New Books in Sports, the channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters.